Hey, this is Dr. Michael Drake, Chancellor of the University of California, Irvine, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and over the web at KUCI.org. I love Anita Radio. The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about the show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. Good morning. You're listening to Ask a Leader on your 20, April 24th, 2012 edition. Welcome as well to the second day of KUCI's Fund Drive, where we welcome your support to keep us going as funding cuts do continue and our desire to give you the best in community program never flags. And today will be no different because we'll hear from Dr. Richard Jackson of UCLA, whose work designing healthy communities is all about improving health and our spirits. So uh, in the second half, we continue with the Earth Day observance and as you might guess, I would indicate that you're invited to observe Earth Day all days out of the year. So we'll learn from an expert and an expediter about e-waste. That's Dr. Odadele Ogunsetun and Goodwill Industries' Catherine Ransom. The USA is number one, folks, that is in the world leader in producing electronic waste, tossing about 3 million tons each year. So more about all of that in the second half. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Dr. Jackson. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. In uh, this first half of the show, we're going to talk with Dr. Richard Jackson, first a pediatrician who chaired the American Academic Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Environmental Health, then next with the Center for Disease Control. From his earlier focus on epidemiology, infectious diseases, and toxicology, he's trained his focus over the last 10 years on how the built environment, including architecture and urban planning, affect health. Currently, Dr. Jackson has been working on policy analyses of environmental impacts on health, ranging, as I said earlier, from toxicology, including other uh, chemical body burdens, uh, terrorism, sustainability, climate change, urban design, and architecture. In addition, he's developing policy analyses in uh, those related areas, and such as how farm, education, housing, and transportation policies affect health. And we've talked a bit about those in previous shows. He has been tirelessly campaigning through all media and academic outlets to challenge us to consider our development patterns, how they undermine healthy bodies and healthy dispositions. The professor and chair of UCLA's Environmental Health Sciences and professor of the Institute of Environment, Sustainability, and Urban Planning, Dr. Jackson comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Jackson. Good morning, Claudia, and thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad that you could be here before you've got to teach that 930 class. Well, you've certainly, indeed, you've certainly been busy appearing everywhere to get out the message that our urban planning defaults have been dysfunctional, to say the least. 
Why don't you, Dr. Jackson, explain these connections between this suburban pattern and the subsequent health consequences, telling us about those deep-rooted structural issues with the built environment that are creating epidemics of obesity, diabetes, and depression? You know, I did 15 years of environmental health in the California Health Department. In fact, I was state health officer for a while. I went to CDC, and I was the arguably the highest health and environment position in the country for almost 10 years. Uh, in that job, we focused on things very minute, like chemicals in our bodies and various kinds of infections that could be spread um, related to climate change and other such issues. And I also focused, and we all focused, on very large issues. Uh, the national pharmaceutical stockpile that was pre-positioned in the event of terrorism and actually was activated on September 11, 2001, um, was within my center at CDC. But over time, um, I kept confronting a set of realities. One is that Americans have become increasingly overweight and obese. Average Americans 25 pounds heavier than we were in 1980. Average child is is about 14 pounds heavier than early teenager. We have doubled diabetes in this country in the last 15 years related to the obesity epidemic. And the number of people taking antidepressants in the United States during the prime of life has gone up fourfold. Wow. Well, the best treatment for um, early onset uh, or adult onset diabetes and, and to prevent it or delay its uh, effects is physical activity. And we have engineered physical activity out of the lives of most Americans. Most Americans are spending 30 minutes to 90 minutes a day sitting in a car. If you sit in a car, your risk of gaining weight, of having high blood pressure, and frankly, having a heart attack during the period of time while and after you're driving has gone up. If you talk to the average person in Los Angeles, they will tell you that the hardest part of my day is not my job, it's my commute to my job. So we've become much less physically active. Only one child in six in California now walks to school compared to two-thirds of them a generation ago. Um, We've become obese and we've become depressed. And the antidote, one of the best counter counter effects on depression, for example, is increased physical activity. And I also, I know that um, some of the work that's being done with uh, diabetes here at UCI is that they're saying Diet is a factor, but they say it's much more critical that um, the person be physically more uh, active. So you're talking. So when we're improving a healthy disposition by trying to uh, wean ourselves from this auto dependency, then you also talk about those environmental hazards of that automobile. So weaning uh, from the automobile takes care of the the macro, the micro level of our. Um, our sedentary lifestyle, but it also deals with starting to attack, approach the problem of all those particulates that are showing up in your work and your sustaining healthy communities uh, with the the higher, the increased incidence of asthma in this country with young people. You know, beginning in the, you know, in the 19th century, cities were really bad places for people to be. The, uh, they were squalid, they were dirty, there were high rates of disease. Um, and we viewed the arrival of the automobile as a cure-all, and in many ways it worked very well. Uh, the number of uh, you know, people were less congested. Our lifespan has improved 30 years in the last century, and a lot of that is due to increasing prosperity, better food, better infrastructure, safer water, safer food, safer jobs. 
But at this point, we're now seeing a flattening out of lifespans and thinking that the medical system, which is consuming 19% of all the money in this country, is going to fix the, this epidemic, the tsunami of chronic diseases that we're seeing. It's not going to happen. We have completely failed to focus enough on prevention. And good physical activity and a good diet is a, a very important start to that. Um, and so we're going to have to really move upstream if we're going to counter the, this epidemic of chronic diseases we're looking at. And, you know, it's not just obesity and, and uh, being out of shape. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the more we drive, the more air pollution we have, and the highest rates of air pollution in the entire Los Angeles Basin are um, in highly automotive or particularly truck vehicle uh, areas uh, mm -hmm. up against the mountains where it's also hot. Right, right. Well, um, yeah, you've t you've toured in your work. Your it's a lovely um, the product that you've developed the, the four part series designing healthy communities. We want to make sure people know how to get a hold of that um, particular uh, production. But you you've toured twelve different cities that offer six success stories about how communities could perform for all of us. Uh, we just have to shed our our auto habit, and that's a that's a really a critical. Um, kind of uh, dependency to try to um, to wean us on. So what do you want to mention? I mean, you t you go to Elgin, Illinois, um, the um, I'm a Presedo in um, in uh, Pennsylvania. You look at uh, a community in Colorado. They're all trying to look at redeveloping, reconsidering underutilized uh, properties in those communities into becoming thriving denser settlement patterns there's a red thread throughout that but we how do we make that those success stories uh, a proposition to uh, planning commissions like near to us here in Irvine to uh, reconsider the the kind of suburban default here well you know this is happening to us in some ways already if you ever see the opening of Disneyland back in 1955, you see the nearby freeway with about three cars on it. And when was the last time anyone in your listing area ever saw a freeway with three cars on it? Not even, as we joke, uh, the only time the 405 is functioning is between 4 and 5 in the morning for mm. most of us. Right. So in, in many ways, it's happened to us. We now have far more cars in America than we have licensed drivers. Uh, we are overwhelmed with cars, and, and they don't work. People were shocked during the Ciclovia, which was this bicycle event in Los Angeles a week or so ago. Right, right. When Great event. Uh, people found that they could get where they wanted to go much more quickly on a bike, and in fact, most of the people around them were smiling and in a good mood. Right. Um, and they didn't need to go to the gym for exercise after they did the equivalent of their commute. So in many ways, the marketplace is driving this. Gasoline is becoming more expensive, and I doubt very many of your listeners think, oh, five years from now it's going to be much cheaper. We all know it's going to get more expensive. Right, and more scarce. Um, right, and uh, we... So the marketplace is driving it. Our young people don't have looked at the rat race lives that a lot of their parents have led. You know, two jobs at different ends of the city, for example, and, and driving an hour to pick up your children and go about your daily life. And they don't want to duplicate it. And they're opting more and more for denser urban areas, oftentimes with public transportation and high levels of walkability. And not surprisingly, a lot of the baby boomers who are now on the threshold of retirement are saying, you know, I really don't want to be car dependent all the time. Sooner or later, I'm going to lose my driving privileges, and I need to be in a place that's walkable. So the marketplace and our demographics are driving this to an extent. Um, cities that really have done a nice job. One Let's talk about those. Is, those are great examples yeah, that you have. 
One is Boulder, Colorado, and it has the benefit of an academic center, et cetera. But um, they had bicycle routes that came from the mountains to the west going east along the creeks. And they were designed by Olmsted sons yes. back in the, oh, 60 years ago or so. But then they put in the bike routes north-south, and pretty much you can go about your daily life in Boulder and nowadays in Minneapolis and Portland without ever getting in a car. And they've invested more and more in protected bikeways so that um, folks that aren't terrific bicyclists can get around just as well as, uh, any, as a car can, in fact, oftentimes faster. So Boulder's done a nice job. Um, Elgin, Illinois, which is a, a, we would call a rust belt town, has had to reinvent itself. And the other thing that's going on is we've got to use, be sustainable. We've got to, we've removed uh, the equivalent area, 60,000 square miles of trees and vegetation in the U.S. to meet the needs of cars. That's what our roadways cover. That's, That's equivalent to the area of Georgia. Mm. So uh, reducing uh, the footprint of cars, including parking, and um, reducing the pollution from it, many cities are moving more towards sustainability. And Elgin, Illinois, took the whole area next to the river, turned it into parkland, green space, bicycle routes. Um, leadership came from the young people, and I'm seeing this. That was one of the big lessons of the uh, series as we went to the different cities was how much the young people get this. And even if, you know, some um, overfed guy on television is telling them, uh, don't worry about climate change, young people know that this is reality in their lives, and they're very worried about it, and they want to lead much more sustainable lives. Exactly. For those of you who've joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 80.9 FM, streaming live on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Dr. Richard Jackson, professor and chair of environmental health sciences at UCLA, concerning his latest venture, the series on designing health communities. And he's talking about the redevelopment in the Rust Belt in Elgin, Illinois. And you also... Um, uh, you find that there's a connection with connecting and good health from your Pennsylvania case study, which is, uh, it, it sort of maps the trend of a good thing that ran amok with the whole demographic trends in our country. Tell us about that community in Pennsylvania. Well, well, Rosado. You, know, you know, what's interesting to me is that our grandparents, and for 50,000 years, human beings knew what made us happy. We needed to be around people we loved. We need to be around people who loved us and liked us and cared about us. And knew us, knew what was going on. Right. And, and new community. I'll ask your listeners, how many of you who are older, I bet every one of you knew people in the houses 10 in either direction from where you grew up. And then ask today, how many of us know our neighbors and know who's around us, and we've become much more isolated. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Part of it is sitting in a car, having the garage door opener um, open up the garage, having someone else uh, do the yard work out front, having no sidewalks, having no front porch, and having no time left to join the PTA because you're spending so much time commuting. We have become increasingly isolated. And it, I wasn't just tossing off a statistic when I said fourfold increase in the use of antidepressants in about 20 years in people prime of life from about 19 to 44, the treatment for depression, for mild to moderate depression, I'm not talking severe clinical right. depression, right. is um, we need to be around people we love. We need social uh, interaction. We, we had festivals and um, dinners and other things when we had deaths in the family, when we have life changes to get us through things that are, are hard in our lives. And the other thing that helps us is physical activity. And the 
exercise, physical activity, especially if we're doing it in the presence of nature. Go out for a bike ride along a, a waterside by a river, look at the vegetation, look at the kids throwing rocks in the water, and come back from the bike ride, and you're pretty depressed if you aren't smiling by the end of that trip. Right, right. And the, the, you talk, when you give us these examples, these are all uh, urban centers that have some very uh, tough weather conditions. I don't think with our millions served here in Los Ange- the Los Angeles area and Orange County area that uh, we really, we've got the best weather around if uh, we could consider, um, reconsider that auto dependency. And I, I also want to mention that when we're having that, our in that suburban sprawl, when we're dependent on the automobile and we're, our children are dependent on us with the automobile, I think, Dr. Jackson, we're sort of infantilizing them to, uh, you know, get them around when they could easily word the culture uh, more open to the proposition of other modes of transportation. They could be more independent and happier people, could they not? You know, in the video series, we interview a half dozen teen girls in Smyrna, Georgia, yes. and they're talking <laughs> about the quality of their lives and they're looking right into the camera and saying, you know, if I want to go anywhere, uh, go to the mall, go to church, go to the store, go to school, I have to ask for a ride. And the idea that we would, you know, as a parent, we want to give our kids, children, constant challenges. We don't want them to be, life to be so easy they're bored. That's what exactly these girls were talking about. Right. We're so hard that they fail all the time because that's not a pattern we want to set up in our children either. So to we want our children to develop increasing autonomy, increasing mastery of the world, increasing ability to know how to go and take a bus to get someplace. Be street to smart. To entertain themselves. Right. And uh, we, over and over again, because we've kept them um, so protected from this, we're, we're really not doing them a favor. Believe it or not, it is the policy statement of the American Academy of Pediatrics that children need to grow up in neighborhoods that um, engage and enable them to have increasing autonomy, increasing physical activity. And partly it's driven because we're so worried about the degree of of lack of physical activity in our kids. At this point, um, only about a third of our high school kids can pass the fitness gram in California. It's not that hard. It's a 12-mile. Can you run, walk? A 12-minute mile is one of the things. And two-thirds of our kids can't do that. Um, two out of every seven volunteers for the U.S. military cannot get in because of obesity and lack of fitness. So this is not something nice. It's not simply so that we'll look more uh, glamorous or handsome. It is critical to people's well-being. And you've con- you've coined the expression genera- generational injustice, that we're not doing uh, the, the next generation uh, any service by um, crippling them with this dependency on our automobile. You know, I worry very much about the world we're giving our children. Um, you look at people that grow up in places where they have children, that, people that grow up in places where they have increasing um, autonomy, increasing ability to take on the world. Our ki- most of our kids can't even walk or bike safely to school because we don't have adequate bicycle or walking routes to schools. And we placed our schools on cheap land way outside of town and in many places got rid of downtown local schools. I was lucky enough to go to a local school. It was about a mile away, but it was nice enough walk each way. And um, you looked around my, my old school picture from 7th and 8th grade. There wasn't scarcely a child who was overweight in the group. Right. And now you look, and, and we're looking at three times the obesity rate in our school-age kids. Well, you, what do you ex- 
uh, could you explain what you mean by uh, this? The 79 million that are pre-diabetic. Um, what pre-diabetic means is if you have sugar in your urine, I'm making it very simple here, but yes. if you have sugar in your urine, you are a diabetic. And But people who have very high blood sugar, but they're not yet have it so high that they're putting it in their urine, that, then we call it uh, pre-diabetes. But, you know, you could be six months from developing full-blown diabetes, and high blood sugar is not good for you. It ha affects um, microcirculation, which is why when you think, hear about people with um, diabetes losing their vision or losing their uh, developing gangrene, it's because these very tiny blood vessels are being affected by the sugar and other elements in a diabetic's blood. And you can't really, you can't tell it's happening until it's really a bit on the late side. So we can tell, the only way we can tell it's happening is if we really look at what we're what we're, how we're taking care of ourselves daily, what we're eating, but again, back to uh, the physical activity. Wait, terrific study where they compared three different drugs with a, a walking program where people got out and walked for a half hour to an hour every morning. And this is a group thing because we need social support systems and we need safe places to walk. I yes. can't tell people to walk if there's no safe place to do it. Um, they had a 50, these were people with pre-diabetes, they had a 58% reduction in the onset of diabetes compared to the people that weren't in the walking campaign program at the end of six months. There's no drug that works that well. There's no drug with so few side effects and with so many benefits as walking. That's really an incredibly elegant solution. I don't know how we can, uh, I don't know, make it culturally more of a prerogative for people. I guess other than you've been... You've really been tireless to try to uh, to get out the message and showing how um, redeveloping uh, away from the suburban sprawl development pattern um, can um, improve all of our uh, our mental and physical uh, sense of well-being. Well, I know that years ago when Andreas Duani, a design critic, talked about a more dense settlement pattern, I, I remember urban planners that were deriding him as peddling nostalgia. How are it, it? It's a problem. I mean, and so we've got to overcome that classic rational planning, comprehensive planning that we can still see going on right here in Irvine with all of this undeveloped property that's still being developed in um, development orders issued for new, brand new subdivisions that are continuing the suburban sprawl. Have you um, any prescriptions for how? we can appeal to the Planning Commission to reconsider this pattern? Um, one, every child has a right and ought to be able to walk or bicycle safely to school. Every person that is unable to drive because of either finances or disability or age ought to be able to lead their lives without having to get in the car. If you can't buy a carton of milk or a newspaper without getting in a car, you're not living in a very smart place. And I do think that as fuel gets more expensive, land becomes uh, harder to come to. You know, the very wealthy will get their, their isolated homes, but the other end of this is if you're poor in America, you know, in many yes, countries, you if have... you're poor, you're not necessarily condemned to a poor environment. In many ways in the U.S., if you're poor, you're in an environment with 
poor air quality, with poor access to uh, ways to get to work and, and church and to go about your life. And we ought to be building places that work for people at all in income strata, not simply the very wealthy. And so being blind to that, I think the other second prescription, and um, I was up in Stanislaus County where Modesto is last week, and they have a full-time person in the health department that goes to the planning meetings, and they've been extremely ah. active in laying out the plans. They put in this lovely bike route that goes um, many miles. has become a source of pride for that community. Redding, California, put in a beautiful Calatrava bridge called oh, the Sundial Bridge over the Sacramento River. It's redefined it's things. The, it, it's, it's beautiful, and it's become the heart of a, a park area and a recreation area, and people go there, and they don't need to be told, oh, go for a walk, it's good for you. They can't resist it. And so we've got to create places that welcome and encourage that. Um, but and we also have to create density that really works, putting people people in places that are ugly, that are dirty, that are unsafe, that have poor sound insulation and poor sight lines and not enough uh, landscaping makes no sense. We ought to be able to have that, whether we're rich or poor in the United States. Right. And one of those things that Andreas Duani talked about is that you know, when you're talking about pedestrians getting safely around is the car that are parked on the curb encourage pedestrian traffic. And if you're designing the street for speed and there are no cars parked along the curb, then you're going to be inhibiting that pedestrian traffic. So there's all these kinds of uh, building codes and infrastructure barriers that make uh, that deter our pedestrians from, uh, you know, navigating safely around here. I want to. Uh, one one yes. of the worst that I've seen is in the Sacramento area. They have these rounded curbs. The side, the cars park and they park up on the curb, mm. so you can't possibly get by that walking, much less in a wheelchair. Yeah, you never know if a door's going to swing out on either either side, whether you're a cyclist right. on the left side, whether you're a pedestrian on the right side. But it's it's a real problem. For those who've just joined us, we have just a few minutes left before Dr. Richard Jackson, UCLA professor and chair of environmental health sciences, uh, has to go and teach his 930 class. Um, this is the fun drive here at KUCI, the station that delivers your community content like no other outlet. Please call 949-824-5824 or that's 824-KUCI, a pledge of $35 or more, you'll start to get a premium. You get a premium from listening to the public affairs and the alternative music that we provide 24-7. Well, Dr. Jackson, um, as uh, you, uh, we want to make sure everybody knows that there, you have this lovely uh, production called Designing Healthy Communities. It's a four-part series. It gives... Uh, anecdotes of communities that have thoughtfully redeveloped a, um, a particular area, and they are in areas that are that have more deterrence than we do. We've got unimproved lands around here. We've got terrific weather here, but in those areas, as I said, the inclement weather conditions doesn't deter people using their bikes, walking around to get to where they need to go. Um, we'll make sure people know about designinghealthycommunities.org is the website to uh, order your copy of Designing Healthy Communities. And, and throughout, Dr. Richard Jackson is talking to urban planners, to architects, to uh, the, the residents who are benefiting from rethinking this. And it's sort of like, it seems within our grasp, does it not, Dr. Jackson, if we have little more urban design literacy, the public would support reconsidering our development pattern, don't you think? I think we owe it to our children and our grandchildren to give them places that they can go about their lives with having without having to depend on being in a car and uh, depend on fossil fuels. 
We owe it to them, and we owe you a debt of gratitude for setting aside some time this morning uh, in your busy schedule of not only teaching but uh, producing, speaking uh, to a, a very broad public about sustaining healthy communities. Dr. Jackson, I wish you success in keeping your message out there, and I thank you very much for being on our show today. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. C'est la fête à la mitraille, mon esprit qui déraille, les pickpockets travaillent, les souris dansent sous les rails. Pas d'abracada, tu n'as tous les Thank you for joining us here on Ask a Leader. My next guests are Dele Ogetetun and Catherine Ransom. Um, Oge, uh, Dele is the um, public health and uh, Department, uh, public health faculty here at UCI, and um, he is a native of Nigeria and saw the the degradation of much of his landscape along with the um, remarkable uh, other flourishing landscape. He saw that juxtaposition. He has been uh, working focusing from his epidemiological and toxical microbial uh, research to looking now toward the impacts of what we know as electronic waste on uh, our environment. And Je- Catherine Ransom of the Orange County um, Goodwill Industries, with her background uh, as an, we, we call Odele uh, the expediter and uh, the, the expert, and Catherine Ransom the the expediter in how uh, we in the local area can contain the waste here in Southern California with the collections that she has. Uh, We have um, the remaining hour to cover all of that and break down what is involved with the hazards of improperly disposing of electronic waste. Uh, Deli, uh, thank you for coming to Ask a Leader. Catherine, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. Hello, Kathy. Thank you. And so what we want to talk about first is, uh, Deli, you could tell us what is going, what are those electronic appliances that we most miss out on that are recyclable and repurposable in uh, our everyday household? Thank you. Yeah, the most common uh, that we all now have in our pockets, uh, cell phones, cellular phones, mobile phones, personal digital assistants. They're all um, converging on the same uh, consumer product unit, uh, whether it's called a smartphone or other varieties. Uh, They are basically miniature computers, and they are the most abundant, if not the most uh, voluminous in terms of uh, electronic waste. Um, But uh, they're also the most frequently changed. Uh, So maybe two years after uh, changing subscriptions, people tend to trade up and get something with bigger memory, wider screen. Uh, so that's the most common one that's uh, really recyclable and shouldn't be thrown out into the trash uh, with domestic waste. Uh, the others, of course, are also uh, very important uh, laptop computers, um, uh, electronic radios, all kinds of appliances that we use are now have some form of um, electronic 
control, and they are all basically the same structure inside, which makes them potentially hazardous waste. And that same structure involves up to 60 different elements, does it not? Yes. Um, many of the uh, materials were developed over the last century, and uh, they are remarkable uh, elements in the properties that they uh, endow the electronic products with. But they are also, many are poorly tested in terms of their human health or environmental components. Others are very well known, uh, such as lead and cadmium and some of the brominated flame retardants. Uh, so when we look at the uh, ele elemental composition of, of many electronic products, uh, it's a lot of different elements, um, some very well known, others poorly characterized. And we, there is a concern about how we're going to s separate these um, different gadgets that were, some of them are recyclable, we can break them apart and take out the materials. Some of them are reusable in their form. They can just be refurbished. So we, there's a way we need to uh, thoughtfully return these, um, these different uh, pieces of equipment so that we get the most out of those elements and uh, we get, and we have sort of, we've minimized how much uh, remanufacturing is uh, necessary so we can still streamline that waste stream. Absolutely. Uh, I think for, at least in this country and maybe most affluent parts of the world, uh, the reasons we throw out electronic gadgets is typically not because they don't work anymore. It's because we want a better, faster equipment. So there are many opportunities to donate and uh, those that are out of batteries to, you know, refurbish them. And uh, I think there's a growing market for used products. Unfortunately, that growing market is typically not in the U.S. And so when uh, they are donated, they're often mixed with products that are not functional or broken because they were dropped or, or some other reason. So it all ends up being sold wholesale, and it makes it very difficult to process them in ways that are environmentally responsible. And we can talk about reprocessing when we bring Catherine in here in the conversation, but I, I want for you, uh, Dele, as graphically as you can, talk about the morbid consequences of chucking that e-waste into our landfill. Let's be graphic today. Well, yeah, I mean, the most uh, uh, well-studied is the impact of, of the lead that uh, is contained in many of the electronic products. It's been phased out in some, uh, but the old equipment contains so much lead that anywhere we're, we're reprocessing them in ways that are not uh, regulated, uh, the whole population could potentially be poisoned uh, with lead. And for children, this means uh, a very costly uh, exposure because they, uh, lead can affect cognitive development, um, very early age, uh, they do poorly in school, uh, they have anemia, uh, and for adults, uh, when the level of lead is very high, 
they can develop uh, hypertension, uh, kidney disease, and all kinds of uh, health problems that make them uh, not uh, well suited to walk productively. Uh, in places in the world where this uh, has become a big problem, there is a village in Guyu, uh, China, where the soil, the water, the lead content of the children's blood uh, is extremely high. Also in uh, Alaba market in Nigeria and in Accra, Ghana. I'm sure these are just the peaks. There are many, many other smaller villages around the world where people try to recycle these things, so collect the precious metals out of them, yes, for sir. example, copper, a little bit of silver, uh, in, and doing so in, in ways that contaminate the air that they breathe, thereby leading to the exposures and the health effects that are just emerging, but clearly um, very serious. Very serious. And so that leads us then to where we can responsibly and easily uh, send our e-waste products uh, here in the, what is it, there are 40 different locations that among other places the Goodwill Industries has available. And Catherine Ransom can talk to us about the Goodwill Industries role in uh, uh, accepting these wastes and at what times and how it's done there. Yes, uh, I would say about 10 to 30 percent of the donations we receive are electronic waste. So safely recycling and disposing of these products um, is really important. Um, besides recycling all of the goods, it also leads to job creation at Goodwill because we have um, a green job program, recycling program, and in turn the revenue raised from those helps people get and keep jobs in the community because we have a number of programs and services that help um, people gain education, training, and employment skills. So we basically recycle the e-waste. Um, if it's possible, we um, are state certified collector of electronic waste. And then we recycle or sell it to recyclers. Or we can refurbish it and sell it in our stores or online to, on shopgoodwill.com. So with all of these locations, you make it very easy for us to do the right thing, Catherine. In addition to having all of the donation centers throughout Orange County, we also accept donations at our stores, and then we have collection events throughout the year. We just had a great collection event in San Juan Capistrano over the weekend for, to celebrate Earth Day, and we also provided document destruction services, which is another one of our business services. So people were able to bring in their electronics and know that it was a safe way to dispose of them, and then we, in turn, are able to um, either have them recycled or refurbished and reuse those goods. So we have collection events throughout the year um, for electronic waste as well as other donated goods. So then, and your your workers that are trained in the the uh, the collection and processing, um, how are they protected um, w w in the contact with these materials? Protective gear, and then of course we have great ventilation. Um, so they also know, you know, which things not to handle and handle. We have a list of, extensive list of items that we accept and items we don't accept. As you can imagine, people often want to just um, give us everything, and some of the things uh, we really can't recycle or handle, so we have to then find a third party who will do that. And that, that must be the hazardous waste um, uh, facilities then, in or the few of those uh, sites in Orange County? 
Exactly. And then other things like um, batteries, you know, those go to a third party. Um, paint, as Dele was saying, you know, lead is extremely dangerous and, and that's not something that we can process or dispose of. So that needs to be disposed of properly. Exactly. Well, um, for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are uh, Dele, Ode, Ode Dele, Ogunsetun, and uh, UCI's Public Health Department here, the faculty, and Catherine Ransom, Director of Marketing Communications at the Orange County Goodwill Industries. And they're both talking about the hazards uh, of e-waste, the appropriate uh, disposal of e-waste here on KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live today, as always, on the web at KUCI.org. We're in the middle of our fund drive. This is the second spring fund drive. I ask for your support by calling 949-824-5824. That's 824-KUCI. And pledge what you can to keep us going and providing content like what we're doing today, giving you the resources to do better in your community, giving you community programming so that you know how to follow through, follow the leader on after asking the leader with um, the the way to go. <laughs> so I I want to go back with, we're talking about responsibly disposing of these uh, products here. Um, we're, we're an affluent area, as Dele was talking about, and uh, we're, we're just, we're tossing our things out. And how do we, um, how do we know that, um, what's our role in making sure that there's not an unscrupulous distribution uh, passing on these hazardous chemicals on to uh, another, um, you know, a, a third world country that isn't as developed? Well, I I uh, was privileged to visit Goodwill's collection uh, drive uh, a couple of months ago in Newport Beach. Right there. How was how'd it go? Oh, it went very well. Um, I I did see uh, some very old equipment from the 70s, even like wood box TVs and transistor radios, and so people have a, a fun, they have they're fond of some of their products and they keep their uh, in their homes for quite a long period of time. But I also saw a lot of things that were very recent, um, you know, from last year uh, that just became outdated, and some people just wanted to switch, let's say, from uh, PCs to, to Macs, and, and those reasons. Um, so we have uh, quite a mix of waste, and I think that Goodwill's uh, collection and processing facility, and I did also visit their processing facility. Um, that's a, a wonderful model uh, for for the country. One of the things that we need to now do is to, of course, replicate this model uh, in different parts of the country. Uh, I think the federal government needs to provide uh, maybe uh, additional incentives and um, and opportunities, if not legislation, to make sure that people know what to do with these uh, materials and that it's uh, cost-effective even for uh, organizations such as Goodwill and maybe some private uh, for-profit entities uh, to come into the, into the role uh, of making sure people are aware that there are options uh, beyond 
storing these things in the closet and then tossing them when they move. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Adele. Adele and Catherine, you can talk about how people can recognize that e-waste isn't just something that's a, a new product, that um, those old television sets, those old consoles that Dele was talking about, those contain those cathode rays, rays that are... Um, CD, let's see, cathode D, CDRs. Cathode. Yeah, cathode ray tubes and that um, the, the glass is mostly heavy because of lead to protect the viewer from the radiation. <laughs> and um, now nobody uses those cathode ray tubes. And especially after last, I think last year, the, we moved from analog signaling to digital. So a lot of the television sets were no longer... Uh, useful, and some people uh, chose to buy the box, others went uh, buy flat screen TVs. And I think we're expecting a lot of those cathode ray tube uh, television sets and computer monitors to still end up in the waste stream. So it's a good time to think about uh, taking them to places like Goodwill. So, Catherine, do you have some kind of a, an easy sheet, a cheat sheet for people to readily recognize what's in their homes that may be more vintage than they thought and would meet the criterion for e-waste so that they know what's, they can make an inventory of what needs to shuffle on over to Goodwill Industries? We do. We actually, on our website, which is ocgoodwill.org, we have a complete list. If you go under business services to electronic waste, um, there are a number of helpful tools that help people understand better what it is they have and how best to dispose of it, as well as items that we can't accept. Um, so that's one resource. But you're absolutely right about the, the cathode ray tubes. When we were gearing up for the analog changeover a couple of years ago, we actually we spent quite a bit of time and collected, I think, something like 5 million pounds of electronics that were specifically from televisions, uh, like Dele was mentioning. So I think there's still many out there, and um, a lot of times they're actually still functioning. So in some cases, we resell them because people still want something like that, and then they'll just buy a converter, or they like it for the antique or vintage appeal. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other things uh, obviously can sell in our stores as well, too, if they're in working order. So that's the beauty of what you're able to do. You're a relay station for what can go into a recycling, what can go into refurbishing, and you can be the center of the market. I'm just thinking uh, from earlier sort of geriatric workshops where, um, the, I mean, there is a market for some of those vintage um, uh, products, that the people that uh, can manipulate an older a vintage appliance that there, there's Goodwill Industries poised to uh, refurbish that so that a, a senior citizen uh, can actually work with that electronic than, uh, you know, all the upgraded new things that are on the market. So it's a really, you're in a very sweet spot to make the most of a lot of different commodities. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, um, Goodwill collectively across the nation, um, in 2005 alone, I think we received something like 27 million pounds of electronics. And so that was roughly equivalent to 963,000 computers. So that's really enough waste to fill wow. something like 1,400 garbage trucks. So fortunately, none of that went to the garbage. <laughs> so it really is a vital service, and we really look at it as um, a service that we provide the community. So there are goodwills across the country doing this that have adopted this model. You were saying, Dele. Yes, I thought I'd say that's just a wonderful service to the community, as Kathy was Yes. Well, 
Um, are there, um, you talked about the event we all just missed in San Juan Capistrano over Earth Day, and as I want to stress to all listeners who are have, they're, they're anticipating my saying this, is that Earth Day is every day of the year, because this is, this is it, folks. So when are the, uh, the next planned events for special collections, Catherine Ransom, over there? Yes, we have several coming up. Um, and a lot of times communities can just have their own donation drives, whether it's an electronic waste or a combined you know, uh, clothing, household goods, electronics as well. But we have some that are coming up. Um, on the 28th of this month, Ladera Ranch Elementary School is hosting an e-waste drive. Uh, DTFC is hosting one on May 1st. And then the city of Dana Point is hosting one on May 12th. Uh, actually, they have two events, one at Dana Hills High School and one at Palisades Elementary Schools. And those, uh, the city of Dana Point always has a highly successful event. And I'm not sure what it is. By, oh. uh, pe- maybe it's that people have more discretionary income and they're sort of recycling through and going buying the next newest model or something. That could be. They really um, have really successful e-waste programs and are very um, a green community. And so the 40 locations where people can drop it off, those are available, um, the precise locations, on your goodwillindustries.org website. Are they not, Catherine? Yes, they are. So people can find out where, and that's where also they can find out when the events. I know that, that UCI also has had its um, e-waste or hazardous waste or e-waste uh, collection days. I wish I had the information in front of me to tell you, but we can we can post folks on when those are coming at uh, on other programming. Um, so I want to give Dele a chance to pitch where we as responsible uh, residents of this community can uh, reach out to policyholders, um, pu- uh, pu- uh, public policy office holders, um, to uh, respond to uh, this kind of a burgeoning kind of a, a problem. You were talking about a congressional effort, Dele. This is true. So last month, the federal government did uh, pass a, um, a, a mandate for all government workers to recycle their electronic waste, and they will probably extend this to uh, their contractors, but this is just the public sector. I see. Um, I, at the federal level, to make it uh, more national in scope, the Congress has a bill uh, that's been passed by the House of Representatives and is now with the uh, community, committee on Environment and Public Works, which is chaired by our own our California own? Senator Barbara Boxer. Uh, you know, Congress only really passes 3% of all bills presented to them. I think this is one where um, letters to Barbara Boxer's office, uh, emails, phone calls might help push this one through. And, what's and it the- would be good for all of us to have a a national policy on e-waste recycling. So please write uh, Senator Barbara Boxer uh, that uh, she should uh, push the electronic waste recycling, the responsible electronic waste recycling uh, bill through her committee so that we can have a law of the land. That's a way to celebrate Earth Day uh, and have that gift keep on giving there. So we'll... um, Keep that information, too, on the podcast so people know how to uh, respond. Um, is there anything uh, else uh, locally, uh, Catherine Ransom, in terms of getting our local 
public office holders to respond to um, our being more responsible? <laughs> I, I think so. there, there is. Um, Goodwill International is actually working with a congressional e-waste working group up on the Hill, and then also with um, the Energy and Environment Committee. So they're looking at federal electronics product stewardship legislation. So um, local legislators are great people to talk with. Uh, we always invite uh, the public and um, people who serve uh, in the who serve in offices to come to events and to learn more. And we give a lot of tours every year, so we really um, put a lot of pressure on on the community too to be active and and for our local leaders to take part in this. Well, I just have one minute left. I want to, and I thank you for both of you being here on your busy schedules. Um, just a quick case study of how Catherine, one of your workers, was able to really land gently with a uh, work um, um, as as a, a, an employee at Goodwill Industries where they could actually be equipped with the training to be a productive uh, contributor to the economy. And then we got to wrap this. Well, I think uh, just one example is an individual named Ramos who was working in our electronic waste program, and he learned how to disassemble and refurbish and prepare items to go into um, our electronic waste stream, whether they were going to be recycled or refurbished. So he learned that skill, and he now has a green job and is an employee. So um, he learned valuable skills through our programs and services um, so much so that we had to hire him because he was just too great to let go. Well, that that's a great story to end on with the economic development side of responsible containment. I want to thank Oradele Ogunsetun and Catherine Ransom, uh, respectively uh, UCI public health professor and director of the marketing communications at Goodwill Industries, for uh, coming on to Ask a Leader today to talk about the responsible handling of the e-waste we no longer want in our household and to keep it out of the landfill. Happy Earth Day every day to both of you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks a lot. And We'll talk to you. If you have some breaking news in the future, I want you to be on my show, you too. Take care. Definitely. All right. Well, we have to wrap this show now because we've got George Rosales coming up next. But while we're waiting for him to set up, I want, well, he's going to help me pitch this program today. So, George. Hello, everybody. This is George Rosales having his hat and not eating it, too. I want for him to help me talk about when you call KUCI 949-824-5824, you are giving us a chance to see that the, the funding continues even as it continues to drop off from the uh, the UC Treasury. Uh, oh, we've got a phone call. George is going to take that phone call now. So I wanted somebody to join me here so they could do that. Well, what we have is we've got a list of premiums I want you to know about. The, the, their CDs we're giving away. We've got vinyl. We've got gift certificates, T-shirts, clothing. Keys, that's uh, miscellaneous goodies, DVDs, books. I want you to know calling KUCI at 949-824-5824. Then we can, we can see you through continuing with our good community programming and bring you topical information, bring you divergent opinions, hour after hour give you alternative music that you had no idea was out there until it was thrown on the platter and played here. 